You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, who's the boss? Some of you remember that show. In, it was an 80s sitcom. It was about a, a major league baseball player, who uh, Tony Maselli, who gets injured. and He becomes the live-in housekeeper for this uh, divorced ad executive. Her name was Angela Bauer. Her son, kind of a quirky little guy, and her mother, who was crazy. And the whole thing was Tony, who's this easygoing, laid-back, free spirit, and Angela, who's this extremely disciplined and highly driven individual. Their, their whole show is built around the conflict between the two of them. Who's going to be in charge? That was what it was. Who's the boss? I don't know about you, but part of my nature and a lot of people's nature is this desire to be in charge. Now, I don't want it to be in charge all the time, but there's a a good section of my life that I feel like I could be in charge of that. And if I'm not in charge, then I'm kind of critiquing, you know, (laughs) in charge. You know, if you're like that, if you're an alpha kind of personality, you know what I'm talking about. Even if you're not a person who desires to be in charge, you always have that moment where there's something that the person in charge wants you to do and you're not game for that. That's just, you don't want to do that. We're all that way. Well, as we continue this series called Game Plan, where we're looking at these specific strategies and these action steps that Peter is giving to these churches in Asia Minor, Northern Asia Minor, who are under persecution. He's given them these directives and so that this is, he's trying to coach them on how to live in the face of persecution. And today's topic we're stepping into, this part of the letter emphasizes submission in the life of the believer. Now, I, I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't know that there's ever a time when anybody is up for a discussion on submission. It's a hard topic. It's not popular in this day, nor was it really all that popular in the first century either. Submission defined doesn't mean slavery or suppression. It simply means this, the recognition of God's authority in our lives. God has established government, he's established the church, he's established the family. So we should give him some latitude to tell us how these things should run. I mean, certainly he has the right to tell us how these things should operate. And keep in mind that there is this constant thread that runs through this entire book, this book of 1 Peter. If you want to turn to our text, you can turn to 1 Peter 2. I should have told you that earlier. 1 Peter 2, we'll start with verse 13. There is a common thread that runs through this entire book, and that is the thread of remembering that there are people who are watching Christians. The world. The world is watching us. They're watching you. They're watching me. Submission may not be easy, but Peter spotlights some specific situations for us in order to set a good example through submission. And we're going to look at that this morning. Before we jump into it, though, I want to answer the question why. Why? Why does he bring this up? Peter explained his reasoning for the importance of submitting to authority. 
And he does it right at the beginning of the text. Verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Peter's reasoning for making submission important in the context that he was writing to these churches is found in the simple phrase, for the Lord's sake. Now the word submit is kind of a hard word, right? Nobody likes it, especially when it's applied to them or it's demanded to them. But the word actually means to subject oneself. That's how it's defined or it's used in this context. And it's possible that some of the early Christians had argued that if they were being falsely accused or mistreated in some way, that they were spiritual foreigners or aliens or strangers. Remember, that's what we talked about in chapter 1 of this letter. They weren't from around here, spiritually speaking. So perhaps they weren't under the authority of human governments. They may have believed that being a Christian gave them immunity from human laws and human rulers. They were under God's authority, his law, his rule. Peter rejected this idea outright. He said, you're wrong. That's wrong. In fact, he tells Christians to submit to every human authority, including the emperor. Now, why is that important? Well, we're not positive when Peter wrote this book exactly, but it's highly probable that as he's writing this, Nero is the emperor of Rome, and he was absolutely horrible to Christians. And Peter's saying, you should be under his authority. You should submit to his authority. And why does he do that? He says, for the Lord's sake. The reputation of Jesus, hear me, is built, it is built by his followers. The reputation of Jesus is built by his followers. And Peter insists that his followers should be known as people who submit to human authorities. Over the next few verses in chapter 2, we're going to see where Peter kind of unpacks all this and explains just how we should submit to authority in two specific ways. The first one is this. Submit to civil authority. Submit to civil authority. Verses 13 and 14 say this. Submit yourselves to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Peter says everything that we do should be to bring glory to God. He points out that we're to be ambassadors of Jesus in our world. It is our responsibility to advertise the virtues of the Lord. We should be his best commercial. Back in verse 9 of this chapter, Peter writes, but you are a chosen people. Listen to who you are. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession." that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says all those things about you so that you can praise him. You can declare his praises to all those people who are surrounding us. As citizens who are Christians, we should submit to the authority given to the human government. And the word translated in verse 13, every human authority actually 
is better translated every human creature. But that's difficult to fit into the context that he's talking about here. You're to submit to every human creature? That's not what he's talking about. He's he's referencing, if you read the entire context, you'll see he's talking about civil authorities. So it's possible that he means to submit to every human creature. And then what Peter does is he defines who these people are that you should submit to. Let me give you an example how this can work from Scripture. If you read Daniel, the first chapter, you find that Daniel, with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, found themselves in a quandary because the king had given this edict that said everybody who is part of the kingdom, they were to take part of this specific diet, and they said no to that. They felt like they were to have a different diet, and as a result, they were going to disobey this law that the king had given. But the way that they did it honored the king. It respected his authority as well as the authorities of the, of the authority of those over them. They weren't rebels about it. They were careful not to embarrass the, the one official who was over them in charge of them so that he didn't get in trouble. They didn't want that to happen. And they were able to do all this and stand their ground on their principles. They glorify God. At the same time, they were able to respect the authority of the king. It's important that we respect the office, even though we may not respect the man or the woman who holds that office. And as much as possible, we should seek to cooperate with the government and obey the laws of the land. I'm not sure Peter was talking about speed limits at that point. You know what I'm saying? Okay, he was. I'm just trying to just make sure you're still awake, okay? Yeah, but we, we must never allow the law to make us violate our conscience or, our diso- or disobey the, the Lord's word. Peter named the offices of those that we should respect. The first is, he says, we should, we should respect the authority of the, uh, of the emperor. Now, we're in a democratic, duly elected nation, right? We're part of a democratic republic, and we don't have an emperor. At least, we, normally, we don't have an emperor, right? <clears throat> I'm kidding. We have a president who, who functions in a lot of ways like a king or an emperor with supreme authority, but he's accountable, unlike most emperors. Now, you may not like Donald Trump, or you may not like Barack Obama, or you may be part of that unique group that doesn't like any of them, right? You're right there in the middle. You may not like any of them, but Peter said that you should show respect to the leader, in our case, to the president, This doesn't mean that you endorse them, but it means you respect them because for whatever reason, they're in that position. Notice that Peter didn't criticize the Roman government in this text. He could have. This would have been the spot to do it, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't suggest that the government should be overthrown because of the persecution the church is facing. And the reason is that God's church has been able to live and grow and thrive in all kinds of political systems. He says you should show respect to the emperor. The second 
the second group that he says we should respect are the governors. The governors are those who are under the supreme authority of the emperor, and they're the ones who administer the laws and execute justice. Ideally, Peter says that they're the officials who punish those who do evil, and they praise those who do good. And he's very clear here that we should show respect to those in the authority of the civil authority over us, the governors as well as the emperor. And then he goes on in verse 15, and this is kind of interesting. He gives us kind of an explanation as to what is valued in that. If we show respect, then what can happen? Look what verse 15 and 16 says. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. God intended that we would silence the critics who we have because we're Christians by doing good, not by opposing the authority over us. And the word silence is kind of an interesting word here. It literally means muzzle. You know, like you would put over the snout of a dog to keep it from barking or biting. The idea here is that the respecting civil authority, that respecting civil authority will silence or muzzle our pagan critics as if they were like a pack of dogs that have been silenced by our actions. We're free. Not just as Americans, but spiritually, we're free in Christ. We celebrate Veterans Day yesterday, and we, we always take to heart the opportunity to honor those who have stood in harm's way on our behalf so that we could have this freedom But what Jesus did on the cross gave us freedom from sin. We're free. And what Peter says here is that we we must never use our freedom for ourselves. That's not the point of freedom. Instead, we should always use it for others. There are religious hucksters or swindlers or crooks who manipulate ignorant people and they try to use religion to disguise their evil actions. We see this all regularly through false doctrines and through cultic, cultic groups. A true Christian, though, he doesn't, he doesn't fall for that, and he doesn't, he doesn't utilize those kinds of actions in order to get people to follow them. A true Christian submits himself to authority because he's, first of all, submitted to Christ. We use his freedom as a tool to build with not as a weapon to fight with. A great example of this I found in this uh, guy that I just got to know earlier this year through our experience with the uh, Issachar Initiative and all the work that we've been partnering with in Nepal. This guy's name is Mark McDonald. Some of you in here may know him. Mark's kind of a low-key guy, but he's a very successful lawyer. I have a mutual friend of Mark's that that was telling me a little bit about Mark. Mark would never say this about himself. But he's very successful in his life. But what he's decided to do in this season of his life, he's decided that he's going to dedicate himself to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. He's at that point in his life where he's saying, hey, this is what I'm going to be about. So you know what he does? He invests one half of his income 
in all of these kingdom initiatives. One of those is Nepal. I mean, he, he is one of the guys that has helped to underwrite all of these church planners there. And he hasn't done all of it, but he's been a significant force in seeing that happen. But he's also talked with his partners at the firm where he works, and he's asked them if he could work it out so that he could dedicate one half of his work as a lawyer to efforts to advance the kingdom of God. Mark is an amazing guy because he's not just talked about using his freedom for the benefit of others. He could use all of that for himself. But he's carved it up and said, hey, you know what? This segment of my life, I'm going to use to help others know who Christ is and grow to become fully devoted followers of his. Mark is committed to people knowing who Jesus is and seeing them surrender their life to him. Not just here in Lexington, but all around the world. Peter goes on and he says in verse 17, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, and fear God, honor the emperor. What Peter does in verse 17 is he kind of buttons all of this up with these four simple directives. These are obligations that we as Christians have, and he's giving them direct. In case you didn't understand the first several verses, here's what he's talking about, okay? Verse one, uh, the first part of this, the first one of these objectives is show proper respect to everyone. This respect is the recognition of the value of each man or woman as a creation of God. He's saying you should respect everyone. And then secondly, he says, love the family of believers. Special love is due to others within the church because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We should care about each other. We should show that agape, unconditional love towards one another. And then he says, fear God, which we've discussed previously. This emphasizes this deep respect for the Lord. And then he says, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. God is to be feared. The emperor was only to be honored. Jesus makes the distinction in Matthew 10, 28. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one, and he's talking about the Lord here, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Normally, responsibilities to God and to a civil authority do not conflict each other. And Christians can obey both of them. But in special cases, our higher authority should be crystal clear to us. And Luke writes in Acts 5.29, he said, We must obey God rather than man! Exclamation point. So if there's ever a conflict, you know where we go. We're going to follow the Lord. And remember... When it comes to these actions of being submissive to civil authority, being obedient to the laws of the land, people are watching you. They're watching how you react. So make sure that they see an example of how Jesus would respond in the same situation. Submit to civil authority. The second way that Peter directs the the churches in northern Asia Minor who are under this persecution to submit is to submit to the boss. Submit to the boss. Let me explain this. In this next paragraph, Peter addressed Christian slaves in these churches. And again, he stressed the importance of submission. He says in verse 18, slaves, which that word slaves doesn't exactly mean what you and I think of when we think of slaves. It's actually in the Greek stands for household servants. Household servants. 
in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to, the, to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Something was happening in this region among Christian slaves. Some of these newly converted slaves thought that their spiritual freedom also guaranteed personal and political freedom as well. And that created problems for themselves as well as the churches that they were involved in. The gospel eventually would overthrow the Roman Empire and it would also end the terrible institution of slavery. Even though at the time the church never preached against either one of those institutions. It's difficult for us in the 21st century to really comprehend, I think, what slavery was like in the first century. During the time of the New Testament writing, slavery was not as bad. Now, let me contextualize that. Slavery is always bad. But on a level of scale of sorts, this was probably some of the best kind of slavery you could be involved in, if that's even possible to comprehend. What I'm talking about was often we think of slavery in the context of what was going on in our country before the Civil War, which would have been catastrophic. But this was much different than that. Often people sold themselves into slavery for a specific period of time as a way to pay off a debt or to try to get ahead. They would become the household servant for someone of means, and they would serve them for a certain period of time. However, it may sound better, but it wasn't always great. You could be the slave of a very hard master or an unkind master. And Peter says that to these Christians, their duty was submission and loyalty to their master. Even if he was harsh, Peter says. Now what Peter wrote to slaves doesn't really transfer specifically or directly into our culture today because most of us in here are probably not in the category of slave. Some teenagers may feel like it at times, you know. <laughs> Why do we have kids? Don't mow the lawn, right? No, I'm kidding. You know better than that. Most of us, most of us are way beyond that. But what Peter wrote to the slaves of the first century does have some application for those of us who are employees under the authority of someone vocationally, we're to be submissive to those who are over us in our jobs, whether they're kind or unkind to us. Christian employees must never take advantage of their employer, ever. If you agree to work there for 40 hours, you should give your employer 40 good hours of you. You owe it to them. Each worker should do an honest day's work and earn their pay, his or her pay. But that doesn't, there is a difference between being a slave and being an employee. And the benefit of being an employee is that you do have recourse. There's been a lot of conversation in our culture over the last month with regard to sexual harassment and sexual abuse in the workplace. And people who have abused their positions because they had authority over others. And you should never stand for that. That is absolutely terrible and it's unexcusable. It should never be tolerated. And if you find yourself in that position, 
you do have recourse. You can go to your supervisor. If they're the person perpetrating the crime, you can, you can go to someone above them in the organization. You go to HR, or you always have the recourse to quit your job. But I would strongly encourage you to get with someone who you trust and invest this struggle with them prayerfully. Seek wisdom and wise counsel as to how to proceed. This should never be tolerated in our culture in any context, ever, ever. Well, Peter goes on in verse 18, the last part of 18, and then verse 19, he says, Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Sometimes a Christian employee may be wronged by an unbelieving supervisor. That can happen. In fact, it probably happens a lot. Peter says, for it is commendable. And what's interesting about the word commendable it is usually it's translated grace. The word grace is a pretty common word in the New Testament. He's saying, for it is grace for him to endure even though he's not in the wrong. A Christian relationship to God is far more important than any relationship that we have with another human. So we want to be sensitive to what Peter's saying here. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Anybody, including an unbeliever, can endure a reprimand when he or she is in the wrong. But it takes a special person, a dedicated Christian, who's willing to endure it when he is right. This is commendable. This is grace, Peter says. God can give us the grace in order to submit and endure, and in this way, we're going to glorify God. People will scratch their heads wondering, what is the deal with that person? I've never seen anybody like that. Now, I've got to be honest with you. The human tendency is to want to fight back. And I'm a very strong advocate for our rights and, and justice, and especially when it's me. You know, if I'm wronged, I want to make sure everybody knows, you know, this is what reality is, Right? And the truth is that anybody can fight back. Normally when I've gone down that path, it's not served me so well. I may win the argument, but I end up losing the war. Do you know what I'm saying? Anybody can fight back, but it takes a spirit-filled Christian to submit and let God fight the battles for you. What if you did that? What might happen? You might actually earn the right to share Christ with them. When Peter then pivots just a bit in the text, and now, he want, and now he's going to focus for his readers on the example of Jesus with regard to this issue of submission. Peter had learned his example the hard way. He had a front row seat as Jesus was teaching and walking through life. And you remember what Peter did? He drew his sword and he wanted to fight when Jesus was talking about suffering on the cross. It would all make sense to him later, he would change his understanding after a period of time. But he was a lot like us, you know. 
he wanted to fight. He wanted to defend what was important. Well, now he has this perspective, and he shares it with us in the next few verses. We'll close out with this. He gives us three very, I think, clarifying illustrations of Jesus. The first one is, Jesus is our example in his life. He is our example in his life. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 and following says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. All that Jesus did on the earth, it's all recorded in the four Gospels, or a good portion of it is recorded in the four Gospels, and it's a perfect example for us to follow. He's our example in the way that he responded to suffering. In spite of the fact that he was sinless in both everything that he said and everything that he did, yet he suffered at the hands of the authorities. The fact that, as I mentioned, Peter used the sword to fight in the garden suggests that he would rather have fought for Jesus than to surrender to God's will. But Peter would eventually submit to that will. Jesus proves that a person could be in the will of God, be greatly loved by God, and still suffer unjustly. Let that sink in just for a moment. There are some today, though, who are preaching a gospel, a theology, we call it health and wealth, that claims Christians will not suffer if they're in the will of God. Those who promote these ideas, they just haven't meditated on the cross enough. Because if you look at the cross, you will see that injustice will happen in this life. Even to the perfect Son of God, it happened. No one could have been more centered in the will of God than the Son of God was. And yet, he suffered. This humility and submission of Jesus by some is considered to be evidence of weakness, but I would push back on that and tell you it's exactly the opposite of weakness. It's the exercise and demonstration of remarkable power. You see, he has power in restraint. Jesus could have summoned the armies of heaven to come and rescue him, but he didn't. Because he had a mission He was walking that path to the cross for us. He died on that cross for you and me. So follow in his footsteps. Imitate his example. This is not an easy teaching. I recognize that. But it may be one of the most profound opportunities for you to testify for Jesus There's a second clarifying illustration that Jesus gives, and that is Jesus is our substitute in his death. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus did not die as a martyr. He died as a savior, a sinless substitute for you and me. The word translated, he bore our sins. That word bore means to carry as a sacrifice. And that's just what Jesus did. When he took on our sins, he was becoming the atoning sacrifice for us. 
It means he covered our sins. He washed them away. And then Peter says, by his wounds you have been healed. I don't think this is a physical healing that he's talking about. I hear people use it in that context, but I don't believe that's what he's talking about here. Rather, he's referencing a spiritual healing. You see, when we have glorified bodies, we're going to get a brand new body when we get to heaven. Can anybody say amen to that? Yes, okay. I know, I can't wait to eat a donut and not inspire this area of my body to grow, okay? I just want to I just want to be, you know, the the six-pack abs and I know you think they're there, but they're not. They're under a protective layer right now. <laughs> But when we get to heaven, there's gonna, we're going to get these new bodies, no sicknesses, no infirmities. They're all going to be gone. But until then, some of God's, even, even God's greatest servants suffer physical afflictions. Some of you may be familiar with Bethany Hamilton's story. She was a young girl who was an upcoming surfer, and she surfed every day. She even participated in these professional or these semi-professional competitions at her young age. She lived in Hawaii, rough life, and she was a homeschooler so that she could make the maximum opportunity of surfing. When the waves were good, she could go surf. One day, she and her friend Elena were out surfing. Bethany was just 13 when she was attacked by a shark that took her left arm just below the shoulder. Elena and her dad were there, and they rushed her to the hospital, the doctors said that she would live, even though she lost 60% of the blood in her body. It was a horrific, horrific attack. The shark greatly discouraged Bethany, putting a damper on her dreams of becoming a pro surfer. How could she surf, she thought, without one arm? I'm missing this one arm. And although Bethany wasn't sure how she'd surf again, She believed that God had a purpose. You see, he got her through the shark attack. There must be a reason. He must have a plan for her life. So she set her eyes on working towards getting better and surfing again. And Bethany trained. She never quit. And eventually she achieved her goal of getting back in the water and surfing and even competing again. That wasn't easy. You can imagine But she trusted God to get her through the hard times that were in the past. She knew he'd get her through the hard times in the future. And he did just that. But he did even more than that. You see, Bethany was given all these opportunities to tell her story. And she found that her story was very inspirational to a lot of other people who were going through very difficult things themselves. Bethany demonstrated that the loss of her arm was no obstacle to fulfilling her goals when she won the 2005 U.S. Nationals Under-18 Surfing Championships. And then in 2007, she went on the pro circuit. Today, she's a mom with a -a two-and-a-half-year-old, and she's expecting her second. The only mistake she made was she married a youth minister. Bethany is an example that Christians aren't immune to suffering. But she continues to be an inspiration to Christians who are facing serious challenges. The last thing that Peter gives us, clarifying illustration about Jesus, is that Jesus is our watchful shepherd in heaven. Listen to verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
You know, in the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherd. But in Calvary, the shepherd died for the sheep. He died for you and me. I think the key truth in this entire section of Scripture is that as you and I live godly lives and we submit in times of suffering and under the authority of those who have charge over us, we are following Jesus' example and we're becoming more like him in those moments. We submit and we obey, not only for the sake of those who are watching, and they are, and not only for the sake of the Lord who is watching, but also for our own sake that we might grow spiritually and we might actually become more like Jesus through those moments. As I mentioned, the unsaved world is watching. But Peter makes a very important point clear, and that is that the shepherd of heaven is also watching over us. So we have nothing to fear, no matter how hard it gets. We can submit to him, and we can know that he will work everything together for our good and for his glory. And he will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise and the example that you have given to us. Lord, thank you for the promise that we're never alone, that you're watching over us, that you watch each step that we take and you're with us. And God, we also thank you for the example that Jesus set, that even as the perfect son of God, he still faced the challenges in this life and he submitted to him even to the point of death God help us to set example set a good example as we submit to these human authorities that we might do it in such a way that we bring honor and glory to you whether it be through the government that we're under or through the boss that we work for or our supervisor whoever it is that has charge over us God help us to be a good example to those who may be watching. And God, may we bring glory to you as we do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, let's stand together and worship Him.